Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Hope you had a nice 4th of July, and we're going to get back into action here. Uh, you know, uh, I do. Uh, I hope you uh, the sound quality here is good. Let me know if you like it or not, but I am using a brand new uh, set up here for my podcast. It's actually a lot simpler. I mean, I'm feel like I had to be, an, you know, I had to have a degree in audio engineering with my setup before, but this seems pretty straightforward and, um, hopefully the sound quality is actually better, but let me know. Uh, you know, uh, I want to remind you now that the fourth is over and the holidays are over that we're having an event uh, the meetup for Wealth Formula, Wealth Formula 2.0 is what we're calling it. But this next meetup is on September 27th and 28th. It's in Dallas. And this is going to be uh, just like the one that we did in Scottsdale that was extremely popular. We're going to have a cocktail party the night before, you know, sort of informal gathering, uh, lectures, uh, tour, bus tour. We're going to see a bunch of properties that if you're an investor club, you may already have ownership in. Uh, even if you don't, just really tremendous educational opportunity. The, the uh, lecturers are going to be great. As usual, we've got, um, we've got Tom Wheelwright. We've got Doug Lodmel, who's actually the guest for today's podcast. And um, we've got a few other really smart people, an economist who's going to talk about the economy, et cetera. So check that out. Go to wealthformulaevents.com. I will warn you that we only have, we're only, we're capping this thing, right? We're only having about a hundred people. Uh, I think a hundred people is about the, uh, the limit here. So you may very well go there and it could already be sold out. That's what happened last time. Um, but um, for those of you who want to get in, don't wait till the last minute because a lot of people did not get in last time, um, getting in time. The reason we only have a hundred people is I don't like having huge events. I think it's, not very um, intimate. I don't get to get to know people. Um, and I really like the idea of having this as a community building event. And for those of you who attended the Scottsdale event, you know that that was probably the favorite aspect that most people had uh, of the entire meeting, which is just getting to know each other and this Wealth Formula community and all of the really, really interesting people in it. So anyway, if you want to uh, check that out, go to wealthformulaevents.com sooner rather than later so you don't miss out. Now, as far as today's podcast, uh, I want to tell you something I think is a very good rule of thumb. If you can't explain it, you don't understand it. And that goes for you and it goes for people who are explaining things to you. Um, and when it comes to personal finance, you know, people often underestimate the importance of understanding. So. Let me give you an example, because I see this one all the time. Let's say you're a hotshot surgeon coming out of residency. You just sign a contract that looks like it's going to pay you somewhere, who knows, maybe $500,000, $750,000, something like that. And you know nothing about investing, taxes, asset protection, any of the stuff we talk about here. And suddenly you have a bunch of quote unquote best friends who are just there to help you with that money and all the things that are going to come along with having a high paid job and the new responsibilities that's all about. They're just there to help you, right? The money manager starts talking to you about all these buckets, you know, buckets drives me crazy when I hear about those buckets. 
Um, the different kinds of yield in those buckets, you got the high risk, you got the low risk, you got the retirement bucket, you got this, that, and the other thing. You know, and he seems to know what he's talking about, but you don't really get it. And even though you don't really get it, you know, uh, you start thinking to yourself, should I ask him about these buckets? Should I ask them how each one of them, uh, what's in those buckets? How are they creating a certain amount of return? And if they were just buckets like that, why wouldn't I just put it in the bucket that made the most money? Why wouldn't I just do that? You know, but you decide not to because you figure, you know what? He knows what he's talking about. After all, he manages money for all the guys in the practice. So instead of asking a lot of questions that might sound kind of dumb and he might think, well, gosh, I thought you were a fancy surgeon. Aren't you, you know, you can't follow me. You just decide to trust him and give him all your money. After all, like you, he's a specialist, right? He's a specialist. Let him do his job. You wouldn't like it if he interfered with yours, right? Okay. Now, I know this scenario to you as a Wealth Formula listener sounds ridiculous, but I can guarantee you it happens every year when surgical residents graduate, when law students graduate. Uh, You know, anybody who's starting to make a lot of money, uh, this is the scenario they run into, and it is endemic. Even surgeons with massive egos are fooled into thinking that personal finance is too complicated and should be handled by a professional. After all, we have all been brainwashed into believing that by Wall Street, right? And that's not by accident. They want you to be afraid. They want you to think that what they do is so complex that you would be downright irresponsible to take things into your own hands. It's actually, if you think about it, it's really brilliant marketing, right? It's really brilliant. The idea is to weaponize complexity to generate fear. And that happens to the highly educated, high-paid professionals as well as anybody else, right? Now, do me a favor. Next time you're in a situation like this with a money manager a tax professional, an asset protection attorney, you name it. Start asking them all the questions you can think of, even if you think they're too stupid. After all, if they can't explain it, they either don't understand it or they simply are just trying to make you feel dumb. That's the reality. I truly believe that. You should be able to make somebody understand something that you understand. Now, the reason for this is that you, as a you know, a specialized, educated professional. Listen, none of this stuff is over your head. If you think you're too busy, on the other hand, to be bothered with your own financial future, you know what's going to happen? You're literally going to pay a steep price and you won't find out about how much you paid until the end of your career and you start doing the math and you go, oh my gosh, what just happened over those last 30 years? And you may say, well... How do you know, Buck? I mean, this is not your world. I mean, you don't, you know, you're not talking to these guys, these money managers. I know because I see it all the time with doctors and other highly specialized professionals who come to Investor Club and they're in their 50s or 60s already. And they have, they're wondering, geez, where's all this money that I've been making for all these years? Okay, so it's not always somebody else. I have to admit that I followed the lead blindly into some things as well. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, I signed up for a foreign asset protection trust because it seemed like a really good idea. And and it is, right? The problem is I just never really understood it, uh, you know, because the guy who was recommending it to me he, well, he seemed like a really smart guy and I just didn't, I asked questions. I didn't seem to ever quite feel completely like I understood. So then I would just stop asking questions because I didn't want to appear stupid. Okay. Now, so I'm telling you, even for people like me who are cognizant of that trap, you can get fooled into that whole, this is complex. Maybe I should just back off and let the guy do his job thing. And it's a mistake because for better or for worse, when it comes to asset protection, that's 
pretty dangerous not to understand what you have protecting you. You know, when push comes to shove, you have to know exactly what your situation is. There is no time to be confused in a knife fight. For, and I can tell you from personal uh, experience, because unfortunately I was in some asset protection knife fights over the past year after a business failure. Um, now everything turned out okay, but I found significant flaws in the way I was set up. And uh, I found it in real time. And it's never a good idea to stress test your protective mechanisms in real time, but that's exactly what I did. And of course, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, so I'm still here. Um, now, since then, I have made it one of my missions to really understand asset protection and to a lesser degree estate planning um, at a higher level than I did. And I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to sit there and pretend I understand. I need to understand this is not over my head and it's not over your head. So I told my uh, CPA and friend Tom Wheelwright about this, and I asked him for suggestions on people to talk to, and he pointed me to a guy by the name of Doug Laudmel. Doug is an asset protection attorney, really smart guy. You are going to want to hear this interview today because hopefully if you're confused, this is going to really, really make you feel better about that. So when we come back, my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast is Doug Laudmel. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest and Wealth Formula podcast is Doug Lodmel. He is the managing partner of Lodmel and Lodmel PC, which is one of the foremost asset protection firms in the country. Doug, welcome to Wealth Formula podcast. Thanks, Buck. Happy to be here. So... Um, you know, you've, been, you've, you've done a webinar for us in the past, so some people, particularly an investor group, probably know you. But, um, you know, looking at your resume, huge list of accomplishments, top law schools, also an LLM, which is a master's in tax law. How'd you end up focusing on asset protection, just so we can kind of get to know you? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question because uh, not a lot of people ask. Uh, my father is an attorney, and he did... Uh, real estate syndications, which I think you're familiar with, yeah, back in the 80s. So in, in Arizona, so if you remember what happened in the 80s in Arizona, we had the SNL, the savings and loan crisis. Oh. It actually didn't affect any of his syndication deals. His deals were long-term raw land deals, Chandler. They all worked out amazing because Arizona was growing and still is. But it affected a bunch of his investors. So they had their own uh, in some cases, bankruptcy issues. And because all these deals were set up as limited partnerships, when the creditors of his investors came around and wanted the value of the investment in a limited partnership, my father said, sorry, they're limited partners. They have no right to demand this. I'm the general partner. I control it. Um, you know, the best you could do is a charging order, but I make no promises about when this distribution is going to happen. Of course, the general partner is friendly to the investors, not to the creditors. Right. So what he saw happen over and over again was these creditors settled for pennies on the dollar. Mm. And inadvertently, these real estate syndications worked as great asset protection. Interesting. He looked at that and said, geez, that worked great. 
can we do this on purpose? And so he, at that time, this is way back in the 80s, started investigating. And that was the very beginning of offshore asset protection. The Cook Islands Trust Act had just been passed in 1984. So we did all the research and ultimately started doing limited partnerships in conjunction with an asset protection trust. So I went to law school and honestly wasn't really intending to go into business with him, but it became very clear after my first year that um, this was this was just a great practice area. So I ended up uh, partnering with him and, and he became my law partner and I followed in his footsteps and the rest is history. Interesting. Well, it's always good to kind of know where people are, you know, kind of uh, approaching their career from because it gives you context right. and understanding their your own background and it actually helps me, for example, just knowing that you're I mean, obviously very knowledgeable in syndications. I mean, that's a lot of what, what I do now. So um, right. so let's back up a little bit. You know, my my listeners, as you know, are a little bit more uh, successful, a little bit more um, uh, savvy than your typical podcast. We have a lot of yep. very, uh, you know, um, highly educated, high paid professionals. Um, but you know what I find in these conversations, cause I have calls with investors all the time and even, you know, people who I don't have calls with, I'm sure they fall into the same boat is that, you know, we don't, no one's really nudging us, um, significantly to look at the idea of asset protection and get some in place. Um, you know, I talk to people all the time who, you know, they're still, they're making mid six figures and everything like, you know, their, their equities and everything are all in their own name. And I'm thinking to myself, right. no one has told you anything yet. So at the simplest level, let's start out saying, okay, if you're an attorney or if you are maybe not an attorney, because maybe you're smarter than others, but, but, um, if you're a doctor or a dentist or, you know, software engineer, like a lot of the folks listening to this are, what is asset protection? Why do we, why do we need it? And who needs it? Okay. Yeah. That's a great place to start. The simple answer is what is asset protection? Asset protection is placing a legal barrier between your assets and your creditors your potential creditors. That's it. It's just a barrier. It's like a safe for your gold that you keep at home or even for your guns, anything of value. Um, we want to put behind a barrier so that it's not easily attached, reached, you know, attacked. For those old school people who grew up in a society where lawsuits were really much less of an issue, having everything in your own name or maybe just in a family trust, that was acceptable. It was okay. 40 years ago, that was fine. Um, but in the past 40 years, the litigation landscape, the legal landscape, the way in which lawsuits are treated has radically changed. It's, it's just fundamentally become a different ballgame. And that ballgame is really simple. Um, the lawyers who do the suing have redrafted the playing field. They've redrafted the rules. Um, things that didn't happen before, like even contingent fees, weren't allowed. In 1960s, Maine was the last state to actually change the law to allow contingent fee attorney. But CPAs are still not allowed to be paid on contingent fee. I mean, if we paid a CPA for how much money they saved us in taxes, what's that CPA going to do? It's going to lie still and cheat for us. Right. They want a bigger fee. Mm -hmm. Well, if you pay an attorney based on how much money they can get you from a claim, what's that attorney going to do? Right. Lie still and cheat. And there's plenty of attorneys in jail today for doing exactly those things, all driven by they want 33 to 50% of the, of the award, the settlement. So the fact that we even allow attorneys to, to sue in a contingent fee model, it's not the way this country started. It's not the way um, it was all the way to the 60s. Um, you know, we used to not allow ambulance chasing. We used to be able to, we used to disbar and throw attorneys in jail if they were caught ambulance chasing. It's institutionalized at this point. Um, the rules of civil procedure have changed to allow for lawsuits with basically no basis or merit. And, and even the, the ethical rules for attorneys have been morphed and changed to trim them all down. So the penalty for doing something wrong is a slap on the wrist. So the why do we need it is we've got a litigation crisis in this country. We have all the world's lawsuits. I mean, the vast majority, 95 or 98% of the world's lawsuits are happening here. And it's all driven by money. It's, it's, a, 
it's a huge industry and the lawyers drive it and the courts have acquiesced into the entire system. Anybody who's been in this system, who's gotten sued, understands how ridiculous it can be. So asset protection is, is, is a, an attempt in my book to level that playing field a little bit, just, right. just to try to even get it back to where it used to be. Um, and right. you do that through legal tools that, that make it hard for creditors to collect. So you can't do a lot about getting people not to sue you because that's just the system we're in, but you can do something about how collectible you are. And that's a huge difference. Well, and, and in some ways they, it goes hand in hand, right? If, um, you know, if you're talking about contingency attorneys and that sort of thing, these guys are smart. They'll, uh, they want to know that there's some assets to get before right. they, you know, they may start attacking you. So it, it, it may function uh, as a bit of a deterrent in addition to actual protection. So oh, that, that, that's the whole idea. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's the main idea is that it is a deterrent that we actually can get them off track on, on this attack by disclosing, Hey, good luck on trying to collect. Here's what we've got in place. So what kind of assets, you know, again, just talking to people on the phone and they say, well, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't own any real estates. So I don't have any LLCs or, you know, like you just hear this kind of stuff. And, and, um, you know, and I say, well, how much do you have in your brokerage account? Well, I've got a million dollars and it's in my name or it's in my wife's right. name, but maybe the wife is better than you if you're, or your husband is better than you if you're a physician, but still there's uh there's some things that, that probably could be done, right? So give us a thousand foot overviews, let's say the levels of asset protection available and who they might be appropriate for. Yeah, that's a great question. So the very first thing is to, to, to take a snapshot of every individual client or every individual person who wants to understand and say, okay, what are the assets? Asset protection is driven by the asset profile. Step one is let's see what is already exempt. This is called exemption planning. So certain assets are exempt from collection against creditors. We want to maximize whatever those are. If you happen to live in Florida or Texas, that would include your home up to an unlimited amount of money. So uh, if you live in Florida and you have a $10 million condo on South Beach in the penthouse of the best building and you have a, an attack and a lawsuit and a judgment for $40 million, you're not moving out of your $10 million paid for condo. You can stay right there. They can't take it from you. It's homestead. It's exempt. Exemption asset protection is the first thing everyone should consider because it's one, it's, it's usually free. There's usually nothing to do except make sure that you qualify for the exemption. And two, it's recognized by the, the, all of the legal system in the United States. So it's, it's almost unbreakable. Um, so exempt assets include homestead exemption to some level, qualified type plans, all your ERISA plans. So if, if you came to me and said, hey, I've got a client and he's got a million bucks. My first question is, is it in his retirement plan or is it in his own name? Mm -hmm. If it's in his retirement plan and it's a defined benefit plan under ERISA, nothing to do. It's already protected under ERISA. We don't need to do a thing. Um, uh, so knowing what's already protected is step number one. And that's the first thing I would do with any client is go through all the exemptions. Um, sometimes life insurance or cash value of life insurance or annuities are exempt depending on your state. That's state by state by state. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at each state and say, okay, in your state, you're, you're, you're exempt or you're exempt up to this amount. Um, but step number one, go through your exemption planning. Step number two, then look at the assets that, that are not exempt and say, okay, what could we do to make these more difficult or impossible or as close to impossible as possible? reach by a creditor um, and and you know if it's cash and investments in your own name definitely we want them out of your name we want them in some type of charging order protection entity i call these cop entities some type of charging order protection entity that's either an llc or a limited partnership and then depending on the level of assets it's going to be um, some type of asset protection trust on top of that whether it's a fully foreign asset protection trust or a bridge trust but and again, depends on the asset level. So just yeah, just review real quick because I know this question comes up quite a bit. But um, you know, a lot of people think that if they have assets in an LLC, that's you know pretty much all they need to do. 
Uh, and you mentioned charging orders, and obviously those charging orders are different in every state. Yep. Um, talk a little bit about the strength of an LLC, um, you know, relative strengths and weaknesses of simply just saying, okay, well, I have an, you know, I have an asset, uh, you know, I have an LLC that's uh, owned by my wife and me, uh, and, um, you know, and, and I'm putting assets in there. And why is that not enough? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is, it's a great start. I mean, it's better than nothing. Having an LLC with you and your wife is, is a reasonable start. Here's the limitations. So first of all, understanding what a charging order is. What a charging order is, is it says, hey, a creditor of a member, member being husband and wife here in our example, a creditor of a member doesn't have a right to foreclose on the LLC and sell the underlying assets and, and force a distribution. What they have a right to is to stand in the place of the member when it comes time to make a distribution. So the theory behind this is that if you are a member of an LLC, and let's say your million dollars, you and your wife, your million dollars is in an LLC and you're the two members, you get a judgment against you for a million dollars. The creditor says, hey, I want the million dollars there. Your answer is, well, if we ever make a distribution to yourself, ourselves, you would certainly be in line for that and you'll just have to wait. That's the theory. Now, that theory works really good if you're in a limited partnership in a real estate syndication and there's 15 other unrelated members and a separate general partner. That works great. It's, it's really going to work. I've, I haven't seen any of those fall um, or break down because you have third-party management that's unrelated to you. You have a bunch of third-party investors in the deals. So mm -hmm. a real estate syndication, this is a side note, but a real estate syndication by its very nature is a really good asset protection vehicle just by its very setup. It already provides a great level of asset protection. For the investor or for the uh, general partner or both? No, for the investor. Got it. Not for the general partner necessarily. <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> the general partner has unlimited liability for the actions right. of that partnership. Right. General right. partner's on the hook. The investors are off the hook. Right, right. Yeah. So, so for the investor, a, a, a real estate syndication is, is, is fundamentally, so if you said, hey, Doug, I'm either going to put my money in a brokerage account or I'm going to invest in a real estate syndication. Which one is better for asset protection? I'm going to tell them the real estate syndication. Um, you know, make your own financial decisions, but from an asset protection standpoint, it's certainly better. Take that same philosophy and you apply it to a, a, a two-member LLC with husband and wife. Here's the problem. The court could say, yeah, that's the general rule. However, in this case, we don't have these third, all these unrelated members to worry about. Uh, both husband and wife are the, are the culpable parties. They're the ones that threw the party, that served the alcohol, that ultimately um, the, 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 the guest left and had this horrific accident. And we're gonna hold them both responsible. So in this case, we're gonna make an exception to the charging order being the exclusive remedy. And they Let me stop you for a second there. In that scenario that you're specifically talking about, is that the an assumption, assuming that both the members of the LLC were involved with, you know, whatever, uh, whatever they're getting sued over, right? I mean, in other yeah. words, if it's just because they're husband and wife alone, would that be problematic? Or is it because, in other words, is there no sovereignty between a husband and wife on an LLC? Or is, is it sort of a gray area? Well, yeah, it's a sort of a gray area. And here's the issue is that judges in the United States have discretion. So there's two courts of law in the United States from this law school theoretical thing. You have the court of law, and you have the court of equity. So the court of law says, what does the law say? The law says charging orders, the exclusive remedy, you cannot foreclose on an interest in, a, in, a, in an LLC. That's what the law says. So the, the judge can look at that and say, yep, I understand the law. The law says I can't do this. However, <clears throat> I have in my back pocket a special superpower as a judge in the United States called the court of equity. And in the court of equity, I am allowed to disregard what the law says in order to find an equitable solution to this problem. And the court of equity, which means basically my personal judgment as the judge here, is that that wouldn't yield a fair result. And since it wouldn't yield a fair result, I'm gonna disregard what the law says 
in favor of getting a fair result. And I'm going to go ahead and foreclose on this limited partnership interest or on this LLC interest in order to make this very sympathetic plaintiff whole. Mm-hmm. And judges do that on a regular basis. Here's the problem, Buck. I can tell you what the court of law says, and I, we could go through every state and we can analyze it up and down. The problem is, is I could never tell you what any individual judge is going to yep. do. And, I, and no one can. And if they tell you they can, you know, they're just, they're guessing. So one yeah. way that people have um, additionally addressed this just through, just through LLCs, and we've talked about this quite a bit, is the concept of equity stripping, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. do you want to talk about that and then talk about whether you actually think, to, I mean, I, from my experience, it is it, people get a little bit too, um, including myself at one point, probably got a little bit too um, sucked into the idea that this was like the golden, um, you know, the, <laughs> the holy grail of protecting yourself is right. through finding a legitimate means of, of equity stripping. But why don't you talk about what it is and what your thoughts are on this? Okay. So, so, so let me back up a little bit and explain how we could even get to the concept of equity stripping. Right. So the way we get to the concept is that we take an asset, like a, a piece of real estate, which is physical and can't be moved. And we put it into a charging order protection entity like an LLC. And normally that LLC would be connected to a holding company, which would typically be another charging order protection entity like a limited partnership, which in turn would be connected to that magical asset protection trust, right? That's either a foreign asset protection trust or a domestic asset protection trust, but something that is supposed to have these magical powers of you, know, you you can't be forced to, to distribute any assets out of it because there's this third party trustee potentially offshore. Yeah. yeah. So so that's the that's that's how we start with that. We lay all that out. Now somebody comes along and says, okay, well, what about the real estate? I have five million dollars worth of paid for real estate, and that's most of my assets. So how does the asset protection trust protect that? And the answer is, oh, it's, it's really easy. The LLC is owned by the holding company, which is owned by the trust. And therefore, it's already in the right chain of ownership. Because it's in the right chain of ownership, it is, it, we can just strip the equity, if we ever have a problem, out of that LLC and send it to the trust offshore. So in theory, that's fantastic and would work. The problem in, in, is in practical reality stripping $5 million of equity out of real estate at a time when you're under stress and in trouble is a lot harder than it seems. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that the plan is wrong or that that's not a very good way to set things up. It's that the execution needs to be much more methodical. You need to be thinking well in advance. And what I tell clients is if it's here in the U S there's, there's no, bets that, you know, bets are all bets are off because judges do what they want to do. So if you're going to get that off the table, you need to get it off the table sooner rather than later. And using phony liens from a Wyoming LLC is not going to cut it. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of one of the things I was trying to get at is I think there's at least in this uh, podcast uh, community, you keep hearing about the same types of stuff and you hear about, Wyoming entities alone uh, acting to uh, strip equity. And it's just the, the, the reality is I think that if you're relying on that as a, as a means of keeping your property, it may not be a good bet, but let's focus in on the, I would say your typical wealth formula listener, because, you know, at this point people are hearing all sorts of different things and thinking, well, okay, well, so then what do I do? So um, let's just take one example, right? Uh, high paid professional, let's say, um, let's say this is a physician or a dentist and they're making, uh, $350,000 a year and, uh, they have a net worth of say $3 million or so, um, a million dollars in equities, the rest in say, you know, non sale, you know, real estate and things like that. Uh, okay. what are the specific issues that this person who reflects, I would say a lot of people in this listenership, um, what, what should they consider? Um, and I know, uh, you know, we can, we can start talking about specific things. I know you, 
um, you've invented something called a bridge trust. Does that then become appropriate for this? Why don't I kind of give you sort of uh, just just how would you talk to this? How do you approach this person and and then think about sort of the levels of what might be appropriate? Right. Right. So, so first I would just look at the assets. So you pretty much lay them out. They have a good income, $350,000 a year. They've used that to end up with a million dollars of equities. And then another $2 million of, I'm guessing real estate is that what sure. we're yeah. there? Okay. Mm-hmm. Or, or other investments, maybe they're limited partnership syndications, yeah. whatever it is. Right. We look at the asset mix. So we start with the juiciest stuff first. So the million dollars of equities is the juiciest stuff. That's the most attractive. If I'm suing and I see a million dollar brokerage account in the name of a guy, that's, that's a green light. I'm going to put full throttles towards getting that, a judgment against that guy because collectability is a non-issue. So I can just go to the bank, present the writ of execution. Yep. Easy so we need to get that moved. The way that we would look at is get that in a cop entity, get that in a charging order protection entity. I'm probably going to recommend a, a limited partnership. Um, I call it an asset management limited partnership. There's a couple of reasons. I don't know if we want to go into them here that an LP is a little different than an LLC. There's a distinction between the general partner and the limited. It's why you see virtually all real estate syndications still using LPs and not LLCs because there's a really nice distinction legally and statutorily as compared to an LLC, which is um, much more of a single class of membership statutorily and then in the operating agreement, you have to, to make these two classes. And the LP is an older legal entity, been around a lot longer. So we like an LP as the holding company. The spouses can be members of that. And then a bridge trust or an asset protection trust, a foreign asset protection trust, one of the two, depending on asset level, would be the limited partner. So just real quick, in terms of the LP or the LLC, there is a distinction amongst different states. So if you can do it, um, you know, if, if you if you have some flexibility, uh, what state would you choose or states would you choose from? Um, okay, so so that's a great question. The, the big states, uh, Wyoming, Nevada, Delaware, um, and I include Arizona in that because Arizona is lesser known, but statutorily exactly the same as Nevada. So it's a very, very good state and it's much less used and therefore it, it's actually, uh, there's some problems with states that are so widely used, yeah. you kind of get a bad reputation and sometimes that's held against you. So my personal preference for holding company is an Arizona limited partnership. Okay. That, okay. That's my personal preference. I don't want to interrupt you, but part of it, I just want to, because one of the issues is I think some of these, some of the states, you might as well not have anything. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, some, some states, if you're if, if you're doing it in California, for example, yep. I wouldn't say it's nothing, but it's it's not the same. It, it's definitely not the same. And you've got another if you state like California that doesn't recognize a series LLC and then you get a planner that goes to Nevada and creates a whole bunch of series LLCs and says, oh, this is your solution and then implements it with California real estate. I don't think you've done the client any service there. Got it. So then you mentioned a, um, on top of that, you mentioned a holding company that, that, that owns, owns that or wait, did, was the trust that opened that? Owned yeah. That? So the holding company would be the limited partnership. So that okay. would own the brokerage account. So you transfer the million dollars into Arizona asset management limited partnership, you know, the XYZ LP. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then XYZ LP is managed and controlled by clients either individually directly or through an LLC, depending on if they want some privacy to the structure. A lot of your clients probably would like the privacy. Yep. So that's where a Wyoming LLC comes in. Yep. That's a really good use for a Wyoming LLC as a general partner, because now we have, an, a, there's no assets to speak of, maybe 1% of the, of the LP interest, but you've got the privacy. So you don't really have any recorded you know, easy to look up who owns this structure. Um, so I use that uh, often, which is a Wyoming LLC as a general partner and an Arizona limited partnership. The limited partner is not registered in Arizona. No one knows who the limited partnerships are. Limited partners are. Yeah. Good thing. Yep. And in our case, the limited partner would then be the bridge trust, which is, we can talk about separately, but that that's your asset protection vehicle. Right. Because now at this point, so now you've effectively got, you've got this holding company, right? This holding company is ultimately 
Uh, the question is, is it going to be owned by something else? Uh, in in many cases, uh, you that, this is where you start getting into the foreign asset protection trust, you know, the offshore trusts. Um, there's been some people talking about some of the domestic asset protection trusts, like in Alaska, et cetera. And um, those things have um, some pluses and minuses. Do you want to talk about that? Because I know, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about uh, when I started talking to you is, of course, I had already had a, I had already had some offshore things set up, but that's not necessarily what your first inclination is. Where I think a lot of asset protection attorneys would say, "Yeah, you need to, you need to have a trust now on top of this holding company." Talk about pluses and minuses and your alternative. Yeah, uh, that, that's a really good point. So the holding company is is important, and depending on the level of assets, it alone might be enough. Just stop there. So you know what? We've got a multi-member Arizona Limited Partnership. It holds the cash. It holds some LLCs, which holds some real estate. Maybe that's enough. Um, if we're talking about a half a million dollars or less than a million dollars, that might be where we just stop. Just a domestic structure to put a little bit of a barrier in there between you know, a creditor and, and, and your assets. Once you get over a million dollars, I don't consider that enough. At that point, we need something on top of that holding company. So your choices are a domestic asset protection trust, foreign asset protection trust, or some type of hybrid. Let's talk about them all. The domestic asset, well, the foreign asset protection trust is, is really the base. It's the baseline. It came first. 1984 was the first statute in the Cook Islands. It is, it is, um, still considered the gold standard. It's why you see so many planners just go straight to it. They're just like, that's the gold standard. That's it, a Cook Islands Trust. Let's just go right there. And that might be appropriate. It might. And we do do that from time to time. But it's not my first stop. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, if you have a foreign trust, you have now subjected yourself to foreign trust compliance which is Form 3520 and 3520A each year. That's a full balance sheet disclosure of all the assets of the trust, responsible parties in the U.S., all listed. Um, you also have FACTA disclosures if you have a foreign account. Well, in my opinion, having a foreign trust and not having a foreign account is, is having a plane without the pilot. I mean, what are you going to do with it? You, you, you need a foreign account if you're going to have a foreign trust. That's the point is you got to get the assets out there. So if you have a foreign account, now you have FACTA disclosures, which is account balances and all those things. So let me stop you right there, because yeah. that, that uh, when you say it like that, seems so obvious, but I have to admit, when I came to you and um, another uh, asset protection uh, attorney and I had already had this set up, that was not recommended to me. Right. Um, to have a foreign bank account. But again, now it makes total sense, right? Because at the end of the day, the thing that the Foreign Asset Protection Trust really, really helps with is liquid assets. Because at this point, like what, what you're talking about doing is even if you're in the middle of some kind of, uh, you know, you're in the middle of something uh, where, where, you know, you're in the middle of a trial or something like that, theoretically, you can move things you know, you can move things offshore and there's really no way to get them back. I mean, you can't order those back, um, uh, you know, because of, their, because of a court order. They can't get it. They don't have jurisdiction, right? Isn't that the idea? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the idea. And you, and you stated it correctly. A foreign asset protection trust works best. I mean, it's, it's, it's real sweet spot is liquid assets that can right. also be moved offshore. That, that's its number one highest and best use. So talk about like the, so the, you know, you have to trustee to deal with, you've got um, uh, all of the other fees and, and reporting requirements. What's the bridge trust doing? Okay. Well, let, so, so with a fully foreign asset protection trust, right. You, you've got all the compliance with the IRS. That's the, what we just talked about. Yep. You've got the trustee, You've got the cost of the trustee. You've also got the cost of that compliance, which is your CPA doing it. I tell clients at the very minimum, you need to budget $5,000 a year to maintain a fully foreign trust. And it's more like 10. And that's mm -hmm. if there's no attack. We're talking about just a dormant standby trust. Right. We're not talking about one that's under actual attack. 
Right. So, so for all those reasons, that's not my first go-to entity because, because of all that. And most of the client you just described, did they really need a foreign asset protection trust? With, with Hopefully not is the answer, but the bridge gives well, them that, that. Yeah, really, really they don't right now. Right. Could they possibly need one? They could possibly need one, but they definitely at this moment don't need one. Right. So, so before I talk to the, about the bridge, let's, let's address the, the domestic side of it. Yeah. Because you know, the idea in 1998, when the Alaska statute was passed, the idea was, is, you know, why send it offshore? We can do this domestically. We've done it for years with Wyoming and Nevada and Delaware. We can just have a state create these exact same types of protections and authority to create this type of trust. So Alaska passed the statute. Uh, Wyoming not to be left out, Nevada not to be left out, Delaware all passed statutes. And now we have, we have, we had 17 states, we actually now have 16 states. One of them repealed their statute. New Hampshire actually said, you know what? It didn't work out for us. We're gonna take it off the books. But we have 16 US states that all have some type of DAPT authority. Here's the problem is that it does simple. Well, here's the benefit. It simplifies the foreign trust reporting because it's not a foreign trust. So we have no 3520. You don't need a foreign account because we're relying on these domestic protections. So we can just keep it all domestic. That's the promise of it. And that was the good side. The problem with it is now we've seen these in action and they just keep failing and they fail for the, for the expected reasons that, a court in one state just doesn't recognize the, the, the trust in another state. Or it's a federal court, which supersedes state law. So Alaska can't tell the federal bankruptcy court, go take a hike. They trump. Or the federal district court. And so what we have is we have an attempt by the states to try to recreate the foreign protection. And I'm not going to say it's been a complete failure. It hasn't, but it is not the success I think everybody in the beginning thought it would be. I certainly never thought it would be a success. I was happy it was happening because it validated the concept of an asset protection trust. And a third of the US states have said, yeah, we like this idea and we're statutorily in, in embodying it. That's good for the concept. The problem is, is the execution has really fallen short. We have a lot of, I know we haven't, a, a fair number of people. I don't know how many, but I, I, I've talked to some people um, who ended up doing a domestic asset trust because, you know, there are some people in this uh, uh, community who other attorneys who are still advocates of it. Are they completely lost? I mean, are they? Is there anything that they can do to, 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 to maximize what they at least they paid for? Um, yeah. So, well, here's the thing. I mean, a domestic asset protection trust could have some value. Number one, if you live in the state in which the statute was passed and you're using that state, you already have a much better trust than if you're out of state trying to use a Nevada trust. Right. Already, you, you, you now at least fit into the bounds of the statute. Because the first thing you got to look at is that Nevada law is made for Nevada citizens. So, you know, if you have, if, you, if you're a Texas citizen and you try to use a Nevada DAPT, you already have a challenge of whether the law should really apply. Second is, if you follow the statute verbatim and you really do have the type of liability that is not in the exemptions of the statute, maybe a DAPT is enough for you. Yeah. So the very first thing I do, if, if, if one of your clients called me and said, hey, Doug, I, I paid for and I did a DAPT, I would say, well, let's see if we can use it. Let's see if it's valuable. Do you live in the state that the DAP was, was done in? You know, you're a Nevada resident, great. That's, that's already a plus. Um, let's look at your risks. What kind of risk are you facing? I mean, have you met all the requirements for the DAPT to be valid? If the answer to everything is, yeah, it, it checks all the boxes, probably going to say, just keep it. It's probably enough because they're not worthless. They're, they, just, they just don't stand up under intense pressure. So now we've talked about the pluses and minuses of those. Let's talk about the hybrid. Yeah. Okay. So, so my question to, to myself 20 years ago now was, gosh, the offshore is clearly the best. I mean, I definitely wanted my clients to have access to that, but I also know my clients pretty well. And I don't think they're going to go for that. It's a little too much for most of them. 
And so I asked myself, well, how could I solve this problem? How could I give them access to the foreign, but keep it simple if we don't really need to use it? Um, and, and the answer was, is I, I created a hybrid. So it starts life as a foreign asset protection trust. So it's registered offshore. It's, it's got a, um, uh, you know, uh, it's designed as a foreign asset protection trust. We've got a foreign trustee in, the, in a standby role. But for the purpose of, of the IRS code, which is 7701A30E, there's a two-part test. It's the court test and the control test. The court has to be in the United States. In other words, the court of primary supervision has to be in the United States. And the person in control has to be in the United States. That means the trustee. So what I do is I meet that. So I bridge that foreign trust back into the U.S. For 7701, I make sure that the trust is governed by a U.S. jurisdiction and that it has a U.S. trustee. Well, who I pick for the U.S. trustee is the client themselves because they're domestic. And it also solves another huge problem that my clients have always had, which is giving up control of their assets before they really need to. So what we have is we have a situation where uh, we have a fairly straightforward domestic grantor trust in which the client is in control of. And I can tell you now it's been 20 years and it, it, over 98% of those trusts have not needed to cross the bridge. In other words, they've not needed to turn fully foreign, drop the US jurisdiction and, and trustee be changed. Well, that tells you that I was pretty much right. Most of my clients do not need a foreign asset protection trust. Right. For the 2% that we've had to do that, what happens is that at the point we cross the bridge and pull the trigger, it's a full foreign asset protection trust. And the foreign jurisdiction recognizes that trust not at the time that the bridge was crossed, but at the time the trust was originally registered. So way back in the beginning. So what you have is you have a foreign asset protection trust that is fully a foreign asset protection trust, all the protections, but you're only really going there if you need to. It's like putting a parachute in your plane. You don't jump out at the first sign of trouble. You wait till the plane's really going down. So Doug, if you have a VAP, if you do already have a Cook Islands Trust, or this is just scenarios in which you may say, well, I don't really have any great benefit to this. Maybe I should back this out into a bridge uh, and not pay all the extra fees. I mean, how, how do you usually deal with that? Because we do have some people uh, for sure who are already in that, uh, that area, including myself. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm pretty hesitant to just wholesale say, yeah, back it up. Because once you've established the Foreign Asset Protection Trust, you've really gone all the way. You've done as much as you can do. I'm pretty hesitant to unravel something that has been in place that long, that um, is providing a, a benefit, albeit probably not going to need to use it. But what I would do is I would give the analysis back to the client. I'd say, okay, here's what you got. You know, if your accountant has figured out how to do the 3520 and you kind of dial that in, if everybody's on the page, the foreign trustees fees, yeah, they're higher than a, a bridge would be, but you know, you're, you're okay. And if the client is of the net worth level where a foreign asset protection trust kind of is already making sense, I'm probably going to say, let's stick with it. Let's not just unravel it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it was misdiagnosed, say that. If, if it's the client you told me about, $3 million in net worth, fairly straightforward guy, not a ton of risk, making $350,000 a year, you know, just nothing out of the box. Does it make sense for him to pay five or seven or $10,000 a year for the next 40 years? Probably not. And in yeah. that case, I would, I would say, you know, let's consider dialing this back. One thing that we didn't really <clears throat> dive into, which I think is actually pretty important for this audience in particular, is that a lot of us are real estate heavy, maybe not even just, you know, we own real estate ourselves, but for example, I have a significant amount of my investments are uh, as a limited partner right. in syndications. And then, of course, I've, I'm also a general partner on syndications. But let's focus on the limited partner syndications or somebody who owns real estate. Would those companies um, or would those assets, would the limited, would the limited partnership investments be coming out of 
the holding company, the Wyoming holding company then? Is that where you would uh, invest passively through? Well, I mean, depends on how they're already invested. So where does your average client hold his LP investments? In a holding company? Well, that's, let's say they're just starting out and they're saying, I want to start investing in a, in a way that is, uh, you know, that protects my assets. So what's the ideal place for them to start, you know, moving money into and investing from there? Would it be that holding company if they're yeah. limited partners? Yeah, it'd be the holding company. So in, in my model, um, I would say, let's start with the Arizona Asset Management Limited Partnership as the holding company. If they want the privacy, let's go ahead and do the Wyoming LLC as the general partner. And you make your investments into your other limited partnership deals through your holding company limited partnership. Got it. Those are your now, two spots. How much, the, now the, the issue there, of course, is, well, this isn't the liquid asset, right? So how am I really getting, you know, what, what's my protection here? I can't just zoom this off into the Cook Islands if there's a problem, right? So what, oh. yeah. Yeah, so one, you're in a limited partnership, so you already have real charging order protection. Right. Very real charging order protection. So you're you no, know, I mean, it's almost unheard of to see a creditor of one of your investors, for example, would not be able to force you to liquidate your a limited partnership deal. Okay. Too many other partners. Too, this is why charging order protection was designed. That's, that's the whole purpose of it. Right. So right there, got a huge deterrent. If in turn, that limited partnership interest is held in another limited partnership, you have a question of whether they can even get a judgment attached through to that, even the charging order. They would legally have to get the charging order from the holding company limited partnership, not from your limited partnership. So you've actually removed it one extra step, which is very good because now, you know, the creditor is looking at it and saying, okay, what are the chances of Buck making a distribution to, you know, a limited partner who's got a, 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 a judgment and a charging order, um, probably pretty low. And this deal could last for years and years and years. Maybe I should go for a settlement. And here's the other thing. I, I mean, let's just say this. The purpose of asset protection is to reach settlement. It's not yeah. to tell people to go pound sand. Get that out of your head if you're thinking, oh, yeah, I have asset protection. I can just tell them to take a hike. No, asset protection is just a, a tool. It's leverage. It's, it's rebalancing what is an unbalanced playing field. But it doesn't mean you can disregard real judgments or real claims in favor of just telling people to, to take a hike. You, you, you want to see this as leverage to make a reasonable settlement, especially if you actually have some responsibility. You, you, know, you need to take it and say, okay, you know what, you're not going to get this assets very easily, but I am willing to make a settlement. And, and that's a conversation I have with every client. I just say, especially the ones that are coming in and they already have something they're worried about. Yeah. And, and it's a misunderstanding I see in the marketplace out there in this community is that right. the asset protection is this magical thing that will just, just wipe out and make everybody run away from you. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful, but it's not magical. And that brings me to, I guess, another, um, uh, thing that you and I talked about that I think is really important to understand is that there is a significant difference. Uh, what I have found in my own experience uh, so far, and um, uh, for better or for worse, is that there's a difference between theory and what works in reality. You know, there's a difference between, you know, uh, you know, a lot of great ideas and a professorial approach to things and a knife fight in the street. You know, uh, you know, what did Mike Tyson say? Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the jaw. Right. And, and so, um, what I like about your approach is you are, are, are far more, I I would say practical. Do you, do you think that that's a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I consider myself practical. The entire bridge trust concept, um, you know, for the first five or 10 years that I did it, I had a whole bunch of my colleagues saying, oh no, here's all the reasons why you're not textbook perfect. And I said, I don't care. This is practical. My clients actually keep their plans. I I watched client after client do foreign asset protection trust just to dissolve them three or four years later. In fact, the average lifespan of a foreign asset protection trust, you're going to be shocked, is only four years. 
Yeah. It's the average lengths because people put them in place when they're feeling stressed and then they get tired once the stress is over, which it almost always resolves. They get tired of maintaining them. They get tired of not being in control. They get tired of dealing with the trustees and filing. Their CPAs are hammering them to please get rid of this thing. I don't like it. CPAs hate it, by the way. Um, and so they just get rid of them. So how good is their perfect plan if it's not in place 15 years later when they actually need to use it? The bridge trust stays in place because we've made it so simple to, to maintain. There's no tax return for it. There's no foreign trust. There's no foreign account. Yet we've left the door open. So I am definitely a pragmatic planner. Um, I probably got that from my father. He's a very pragmatic guy and, and was always just very practical. It wasn't about theory and textbooks and perfect answers. It was about how does this knife fight go down in the street? Yeah. And, and I think that's a really valuable um, advice because I think that's one of the big things, like I said, that are missing. And, you know, there's a lot of practical issues about the fact that um, I think, uh, gosh, you just got a stress test ahead of time too. Let me just, one of the, um, you know, because of your advice and the advice of another asset protection trainer, I've been trying to uh, open up a foreign banking account, foreign account yeah. and this trustee that I, I've been paying is absolutely worthless. Absolutely <laughs> worthless. I mean, it's literally been three months. And I, can't, I just can't get them to get this foreign account open. It's just remarkable. And it's like, imagine if that was your situation and you were under duress and you were trying to do something and you couldn't get your trustee to respond. There's just so many moving parts to this. And, um, you know, and yeah. It is where I'm at, but I mean, it's, it's good to at least know, uh, you know, things like that. Like, you know, your trustee is going to respond if you need them to respond. Um, yeah. So, so that's something, by the way, if people have got a FAP, make sure that your trustee is responsive. Um, I've heard that more than once, Buck. I mean, a bunch of times I've seen just the trustees were just a name on a piece of paper. They, they were not prepared to handle the job. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, Doug, you were kind enough to do a webinar for us. And what we did is we put the recording on uh, wealthformula.com under asset protection for professionals. So um, if people want to check that out, I urge them to uh, to download that um, that webinar. But let us know also if people just want to call you or get in touch with you where, you know, what's the website? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can just go to the website, uh, lodmel.com, L-O-D-M-E-L-L.com. That's my last name. There's a ton of stuff on there, videos, and lots of lots of content. Um, I, I feel like educating my clients is the best thing I can do so they understand. They're also welcome to call 602-230-2014. That's the main number. Um, if you call in and you say, I heard this you know, podcast with Buck, I just... Doug said he would he would uh, talk and give me an analysis. Um, my assistant will schedule you. There's no cost for that for any of your clients, your listeners that are listening to this. Um, and I'm happy to talk. And again, the first thing I'm going to do is go over, see if there's exempt assets. I, 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 you'd be surprised how many times I get to give the good news. Hey, you're pretty much covered. You know, you're all good. You live in the right state and you have an asset mix that's that's already protected. Yep. And the other great thing is that Doug will be joining us in Dallas for our next Well Formula Meetup, yeah. September 27th, 28th. Um, Doug is actually a friend of Tom Wheelwright, who's also going to be there. And so we're looking forward to having you. And then you're another reason people should definitely come out and uh, check it out and meet you in person and, uh, you know, get some, get some advice on the road. So, Doug, again, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Well Formula Podcast. All right. Thanks, Buck. My pleasure. Be right back. Uh, welcome back to the show. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Doug is a unique guy uh, who, you know, he's he's brilliant, obviously, but he's also practical. And probably the most important situation here with regard to what we're talking about today is the fact that he's a great communicator. Um, now, I, I don't know if you understood that or not, uh, what we were talking about, but this is critically important stuff. It's stuff that you can understand. And if you want to go over it in a little bit more detail, make sure to go to wellformula.com and to uh, click on that icon, which is Asset Protection for uh, Professionals, and uh, you can watch Doug's webinar there. Um, also, I want to let you know and remind you that if you liked what you heard here, Doug is going to be one of our speakers at the next Wealth Formula Meetup, which again is September 27th and 28th. Check that out, wealthformulaevents.com. 
And if you can't make the live events, definitely consider joining Wealth Formula Network. It's basically the same type of thing, but it's a virtual online community. We started off with a lineup of, you know, the, the courses, the, the course with a bunch of the, the speakers that you've become familiar with, like Tom Wilright and Ken McElroy. But then we have a private Facebook group. We have a portal, a private portal, and we have bi-weekly Zoom video calls. So check it all out. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. We would love to have you as part of the Wealth Formula Network. It is a very, very popular group, especially, I got to tell you, those bi-weekly phone calls, people make them religiously, and um, we get a lot of really good feedback. So with that, I will leave you for this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.